London, and I'm Christine Becker, reporting for Cinema Journal Presents ACA Media. Christine, you sound you sound kind of far away. Are, are you on a rooftop? <laughs> no, I am in an extremely tiny hotel room in London. Uh, so that's might might be why I sound strange because the walls are literally only about four feet apart. So in fact, this actually is Cinema Journal Presents ACA Media, isn't it? It really is. Uh, in fact, we are in the the home country of Cinema Journal's editor, who I'm going to meet with on Tuesday. So it's all Excellent. it's all coming together. And I am here in the Acomedia compound in Austin, Texas. We've got a terrific show coming up. This is one of our summer episodes again, and so we're trying to stay on track. And that requires us to do things like Skype in from uh, a broom closet in London. To hold <laughs> exactly. everything together. And I'm talking to a little kind of a makeshift setup here. So I probably don't sound as crisp and wonderful as I usually do because I've just got sort of a little uh, microphone set on top of a, a, um, a camera tripod. And I've got my you know, laptop here, and, and literally there's room for nothing else in this room. So, Well, the standard Acomedia microphones are, well, they're really, really big. Mm-hmm, and so they right. don't travel very well. And yeah, it, I mean, my luggage is already big enough. Um, I tried to pack light, but, you know, for a three-week trip to London, or excuse me, to the UK, and because I've actually been, uh, I went on sort of a whirlwind trip with a, a friend of mine from college. We went, I think it was something like 10 cities in 13 days, leading up to the Consoling Passions Conference. And uh, it was it was a really great experience, but we both lugged rather large suitcases from one train to the next, which was kind of ridiculous. Yeah, but uh, there's one... Uh, we ran into one Scottish woman on the train, and she says, you're American. Of course you have a lot of luggage. So a little global right. observation there. That's probably not a flattering observation. <laughs> she said it very nicely. It was, it was said it appeared in, in, in global kindness. So. But I assume she's seen a lot of Americans lugging enormous bags onto trains. And, of course, this is part of what I think you referred to earlier as your acatourism. Exactly. And I, I borrowed that term, a Facebook friend of mine who actually then met at Consoling Passions for the first time, Julia Leda, she uh, referred to her own acatourism. And hers is something like, uh, I think she said 14 cities in three months going to a bunch of conferences. You know, one thing we get a chance to do here in, in summer is... You know, as you know, we don't exactly take summers off, but we are at least able to get more mobile during summer. And so I wanted to come. First of all, I was coming for Consoling Passions. Um, so that put the UK on my docket. And then you don't come over for just a weekend when you're going to get on a plane for eight hours. And and this is also, I'm going to argue, this is also part of research because my current research area is studying British television. And I've only been to London. I basically wanted to get around and see more parts of the UK. So I dipped into you know Wales and Scotland as well. I'm assuming I got a good portrait of British tourism. I don't know that I got a good portrait of Britain, but um, I had a lot of conversations with a lot of people. Um, I had the value of, of traveling with a very chatty friend, and basically, uh, you know, wherever we were, she would chat people up and we'd have conversations. So I feel like at least I got a better sense of, of things beyond the capital. So um, in that sense, my, my, you know, my tourism might have been more tourism than ACA, but uh, I do feel like I've gotten some, some benefit for it from my, for my own research. Excellent. Those kinds of trips are really, really terrific. I did a, um, went to a conference in New Zealand a couple of years ago that was so far my ACA tourism highlight. Just a fantastic hmm. conference and really nice people and mountains. You, you can't go wrong when you got a conference that, that has mountains. Yeah, that's good. Um, but you have some travels ahead of you this month as well, right? You have a very busy summer yourself? I do indeed. Uh, the uh, Acomedia compound in Austin, Texas is currently undergoing some, uh, let's see, how should I put this? Well, we're packing it up. <laughs> um, yes, I can, I can officially announce that I am moving north to join Christine Becker in the Department of Film, Television, and Theater at Notre Dame. We are consolidating Acomedia. We are. We are. It's a consolidation. This is, and I think this was really the driving force. We wanted Acomedia under one roof, so we thought we have to go get you and, and, uh, and your partner, Mary Kearney, um, which, in all seriousness, though, uh, we couldn't be more excited at Notre Dame. This is uh, going to revolutionize our department, so can't wait for fall. And and we'll also uh, be happy, as you said to me earlier before we, we started recording this, it'll be nice for us to be in the same room it when will. we do this. 
you have no idea how much easier it's going to be to edit this with when we're actually <laughs> um, recording on the same piece of technology in the same room. But right. yes, I am terrifically excited. Mary is too. We're just fantastically excited about the move. Really looking forward to working with all of you. All right, so uh, let's move on to the show. We actually have uh, two segments for you, rather than the usual three. When we get to part three, we'll explain what happened with segment three. But we do still have two great segments for you. And Michael, you have the first one. So why don't you give us a quick introduction to that? Yes, indeed. My interview is with Paula Ahmad, who is at the University of Iowa, she has a recent article in Cinema Journal about what she calls the visual ripost, which is the, the look back at the camera within uh, colonialist cinema. It's really, really interesting conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Paula Ahmad is Associate Professor and Director of Graduate Studies in the Department of Cinema and Comparative Literature at the University of Iowa. She teaches in the areas of film and photographic history and theory, documentary studies, feminism and French cinema, post-colonial theory, and memory and archive studies. She is the author of Counter Archive, Film, The Everyday, and Albert Kahn's Archive de la Planète, from Columbia in 2010, among other publications. She is also the author of Visual Ripost, Looking Back at the Return of the Gaze as Post-Colonial Theory's Gift to Film Studies, in a recent issue of Cinema Journal. In the article, she examines the theoretical and historical background of the return of the gaze phenomenon in film studies and in film practice, particularly with an eye toward the articulation between postcolonial and visual studies, and discusses its limitations and potentialities through a case study of films made by Father Francis Opier in Benin in 1929 and 1930. Dr. Ahmad, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Michael. It's great to be here. One of the things that really struck me about this article is that it acts as something of a primer in the study of visual power relations. You, you do a really terrific job, it seems to me, in articulating the resonances between some fairly diverse theoretical approaches to, the, to questions of visuality, the colonial gaze, and power. And I was particularly interested in how you essentially construct a common conversation across a range of theorists, some, some coming from uh, a kind of French philosophical tradition, Foucault, etc., some post-colonialists. And I thought you really animated those interconnections across different theoretical approaches in a really nice way. At the same time, I thought you did a really nice job of making sure to not distill them down so much that they were essentially all saying the same thing. And so as, a, as an opening question, I wonder what you think about the tensions between theorizing the gaze as a very broad phenomenon versus paying attention to the specificity and the mechanics of particular ways of theorizing it. Yeah, and I think that that question really gets at the heart of the problematic that the paper was trying to engage with. Because on the one hand, uh, you know, theories of the gaze, and of course, you know, theories of the gaze have a, has a very long and, and complicated um, intellectual history behind it. Um, but the particular moment in the theorisation of the gaze that I was interested in opening up was that around uh, the late 1970s and early 80s when um, developments within post-colonial theory um, in part were trying to interrogate the limitations of certain types of theories of spectatorship, etc. Um, so, um, one of the ways in which they're doing this is by, you know, wanting to speak back to the um, potential uh, for a type of monolithic understanding of an abstract gaze within cinema, um, and, and trying to interrogate that through. Uh, histories that attend more specifically to, uh, you know, the embodied spectator, um, the actual viewer in the cinema mm -hmm. positioned according to race, sexuality, um, uh, nationality, etc. So, you know, that problematic is really key to what's going on in, in the essay. At the same time, I think that, um, you know, um, that theories of the gaze um, and history don't necessarily have to be irreconcilable as well. Mm -hmm. And so you can still, uh, you know, mobilise the power and the, the transcultural and trans-historical 
are, you know, power and force of certain types of theories of the gaze, while also attending to the complications that arise within a particular cinematic and or visual context. And that's really what I was trying to do um, as I take on the, the hermeneutic of, of what I call visual repost. Um, you know, the visual repost hermeneutic being one in which I'm arguing um, a lot of scholars, myself included, become very attracted to a type of reading of looks at the camera within the history of cinema. One of the things that really signals that kind of contextual care in your approach is, is where you begin. And you don't begin with actually theory for its own sake. You begin with Usman Semben and Jean Rouge. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got that you've got that terrific moment where Semben looks back at at the ethnographer and says, You look at us like insects. And so there's I mean that's a that's a that's a political and a cultural intervention, but it's also a theoretical inter- intervention, right? Yeah, that's right. And it's a, it's a really provocative statement as well, um, particularly given a certain type of, uh, and particularly since his death, um, the death of Jean Rouge, um, a, a particular sort of uh, hagiography that sometimes goes on around Jean Rouge's work um, because, you know, he is a filmmaker who is profoundly interested in opening up dialogue um, and in intersubjectivity in filmmaking and ethnographic practices. And yet here you have the, uh, you know, one of the foremost, if not the foremost, um, African filmmaker, you know, um, pinpointing him as an exemplar of the oppressive mechanisms of, of the camera um, vis-a-vis racial others. Um, and so it, it's, a, it's a provocative statement that I think in many ways all film scholars and all people dealing with the history of representations of racial um, others has to deal with in some way. I mean, it speaks to a much larger, you know, metaphorical um, uh, um, condemnation of vision in, uh, you know, vis-a-vis relations with, with the racial other as well. A type of condemnation, you know, that argues that the camera um, can have no business in, in history with the black other, aside from being an oppressive, disciplining, you know, gay, mm-hmm. um, uh, which, of course, somebody like Ruth would want to counter. But um, at the same time, you know, that the, the evidence of the camera's complicity with colonial regimes is, is, is absolutely um, um, unarguable. But part of what's going on with analyses that um, want to think through these moments where people are looking back at the camera, okay, are the possibilities of puncturing the, the monolithic, um, uh, you know, perfection of that system, as it were, whereby uh, the camera is always complicit with the reduction of the other to a type of, you know, if not stereotype, then a type of negative um, uh, shadow to the, to the white subject. Where does Father O.P.A. fit into this conversation? Well, the films of um, Father Francis O.P.A., I first came across them when I was doing my research on Albert Kahn's Archie de la Planète, Mm -hmm. which is one of the, um, you know, it's the the major case study in my first book, Mm -hmm. um, Counter Archive, which is a book that deals with the um, conceptual possibility of thinking about the emergence of cinema um, uh, and how it changes our notions of the archive. And it does this through looking at this really unique um, and vast collection of films um, in Albert Kahn's Archive de la Planète, uh, which was a photo cinematographic archiving of everyday life around the world. Mm-hmm. Now, in this archive, which um, one can go and visit and study um, on the outskirts of Paris, there are a lot of films, and some of them are part of the archive proper, Okay, and it had a, a geographical director, etc. And then there are films that sort of exist on the, the fringes of the archive. And the films of Opiers are, are one of those minor archives within the Khan archive. And so I think I mentioned them briefly towards the end of my book, Counter Archive, but I wasn't able to go into a lot more depth with them. And so um, one of the reasons why I turned to his films in this essay where I'm trying to think about what it would mean to um, reform the hermeneutic of the return gaze 
uh, within an historical context, uh, uh, you know, so a context in which we're looking at a body of films from the colonial period, mm-hmm. I turn to the OPS films because they're really striking on a number of levels. Um, uh, one of the reasons why they're so striking, as I mentioned in the article, is they're so visibly schizophrenic in a certain way. He makes two bodies of films. Um, uh, one of them for the, the missionary that he works for, the, the Catholic missionary of Lyon in France, um, and the other a body of films that he actually makes for Albert Kahn's Archive de la Planète, and that's The Connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and these two films, these two bodies of films, are really quite different. Uh, and Orpiers himself is a man who's really split as well. And so on the surface of it, you have here... You know, somebody who you could easily very simply reduce to a proponent and a, um, uh, a spokesperson uh, for a colonial regime, okay? And even more so because he's a, um, a Catholic missionary and therefore an embodiment of the mission civilisatrice, the notion of the need to, uh, you know, civilise the colonised through, mm-hmm. um, uh, um, through Christianity, yeah? Um, and yet at the same time, this is a priest who in his career was really pushing against the establishment Catholic hierarchy with a lot of his opinions about um, Africans and in particular Dalmain through the sort of quasi-ethnographic studies that he was doing. And he finds himself really um, at loggerheads with the Catholic Church uh, because he wasn't towing the line in relation to how you were supposed to view Africans and how you were supposed to view their rites and rituals. Um, you know, you were supposed to view certain of their voodoo uh, rituals, for example, as satanic practice. He wasn't saying that. He was actually saying that, well, no, we need to look at those practices on a par with um, the types of strange rituals that are, um, are the norm in, in the Catholic Church, for example. Now, this might be a little bit of an aside, but one of the things that um, seems interesting that I'm thinking of just as you're speaking right now is that is that there's a really interesting historiographic kind of um, challenge or question lurking in this project, which is how you deal with these kind of boundary figures. You know, some, someone like this um, colonial priest we can obviously really, really easily just read them as, you know, as an, as an outpost, as, a, um, as kind of the point of the spear of colonialism and westernization, right? And so, so we can, you know, we can read them institutionally and through their, their own symbolic practices and things as, as just kind of telling us exactly as, as demonstrating colonialism in its most overt, crude, and blunt kind of way. But at the same time, if we try to be a bit empathic about how it is that someone like that would choose to go into that situation, all of a sudden we have a more complicated person, right? This is somebody who is, is not choosing to be at the center of French culture. It's somebody who is probably motivated by curiosity and interest and a kind of general, a genuine um, enthusiasm for engaging with the cultures that he's interacting with, which is probably the case with someone like Jean Rouge too, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and yeah, and so I think that um, part of what your question is getting at is that, you know, there there is a need to... Uh, um, and this, again, is part of the provocation in the opening section of the, the essay where I'm, I'm sort of arguing or pointing to the need for um, film studies to still owe something and return something to um, post-colonial studies. Um, and I'm sort of asking, you know, that I, well, I'm sort of suggesting that there's some unfinished business still to be done mm-hmm. between film studies and um, post-colonially inflect, inflected studies of, the, of colonial films. Um, because I do think it's, you know, it's just too easy to assume that a colonial film uh, perfectly um, emblematizes and delivers uh, colonial ideology, right. even though there are really absolutely important um, ways in which 
the visual dynamics that you see within these types of films um, are perpetuating and, and reproducing colonial ideology. And, and this is where, you know, the connection between vision and power um, that was coming out uh, in the, the late 60s and 70s um, was, was so important and it's an incredibly important move because, mm-hmm. you know, um, and a lot of this is coming out of the work of Foucault and in debate with it, but we've got to remember that prior to that moment, um, there's this notion that, you know, well, power operates very visibly and in very physically forceful ways, okay? And part of the incredible importance of somebody like, you know, Foucault was that we began to understand how power operates um, in really subtle, minute, micro mm-hmm. sort of ways, okay? Um, now, what then happened with the uptake of certain types of reductions of Foucaultian theory, particularly his panoptic um, uh, analysis, was that the system of that type of surveillance, uh, you know, apparatus was magnified out of all proportion and lost specificity and um, and he himself recognised this as well and it lost the ability to speak for, um, you know, divergences and um, breakdowns in the system, as it were. So someone like Aupiers, okay, who is, you know, exactly as you're mentioning, in the belly of the beast, as it were, of French colonialism, um, is a really important figure for thinking about this because he's not only obviously undergoing his own personal crises vis-a-vis how a Catholic is supposed to view the African other, okay, because he's increasingly, um, you know, he's not arguing that the African is equal to the, the Western subject, but he's arguing, he's pushing towards that and he's pushing towards the need for, um, if not self-governance, then a respect for, um, uh, you know, the need for the African to tell their own story, for example. So he's a champion of early um, uh, ethnographic-type writings by Africans. Um, He's also a critic of uh, colonial slavery, for example. Okay, So, so he's both within the system and he's experiencing the inevitable decline of that system, mm-hmm. okay? And that's why I, I turn to his films as an interesting sort of um, imprint of those tensions that are going on within this one man at a, at a particularly transitional time within um, uh, French colonial policy and also within the conventions of the return of the gays in um, documentary film as well. So... Mm-hmm. So that's some of the reasons why I wanted to look at his films. Well, and it it seems that you're arguing that if we're trying to assess the politics of a particular act of representation, we have to be sensitive to contexts of geography and culture, but also those of temporality. You know, we and and probably temporality in multiple kinds of ways. We have the kind of temporal specificity of this priest, right? You know, yeah. when when and how and why he is engaged in a kind of filmmaking practice that he is. But then at the level of, at the textual level, it seems like we also have to deal with, you know, if we're trying to valorize or at least recognize the power of the look back, the, the riposte, um, we have to see that as a kind of temporal intervention too, right? It, I mean, it's just a, it might even be just a fleeting moment in a film where the, the subject refuses a certain kind of um, Western gaze and, you know, and, and insists upon looking back. And then that moment's gone, right? I mean, these are, these are not necessarily assessments that, that you can really broadly generalize about a lot of the time. Right, right. And I think that the register of the temporal there is something that's quite important to um, the argument that I'm trying to make because, um, as as you were mentioning, uh, you know, there are different registers of temporality going on here. And part of the way in which I'm speaking about uh, the way in which um, this hermeneutic of visual repost operates is exactly through a quite brief staccato temporal register whereby scholars and critics are often, um, some might argue, um, exaggerating out of all proportion a really tiny small moment within a larger film, this flicker where somebody looks back at the, right. the camera. Okay, sometimes it's more sustained. 
Um, and I emphasize, and here the Sertoe becomes really important for me, um, you know, I emphasize and recognize the, the brief nature of this, uh, um, you know, of this interruption um, because on a number of levels, the the inconsequentiality of it temporally is, is important for me because I'm, as you, you know, as you just suggested, I'm not arguing that these moments um, can be read as really building up a story of uh, palpable resistance, but that they are a reflection of the temporal post-colonial position within which the critic is writing as well and projecting back onto the past a certain type of desire for, if not resistance, then some type of necessary fictional agency within the historical record vis-a-vis mm-hmm. -vis the oppressed. Okay, and, and this is where Desertoe for me was really important because, um, you know, if we return to um, the practice of everyday life, you know, what he's interested in there is speaking about um, the powerless, okay, and, and the ways in which the powerless make do. Um, and often uh, this making do occurs in quite small micro-registers that don't necessarily amount to an outright attack but that, um, you, know, uh, you know, that often even resemble a type of, uh, you know, they often don't register at all in a certain way. There's something quite fleeting mm -hmm. and imaginary about these um, interruptions to the larger panoptic system, as it were. And keeping in mind that, as I mentioned in the article as well, Deserto was definitely, you know, pushing against um, Foucauldian or a type of um, uh, pessimistic Foucauldianism within within that book as well, where he was trying to argue back against Foucauldian space and interject um, this, this type of interrupted temporality within it. And I mention this also because, you know, part of the visual repost hermeneutic, I think, um, stems from these types of speculative uh, history that are necessary on the part of those who have been um, negated by the historical record, okay? And so, uh, you know, for those who, for example, uh, you know, haven't left behind um, records in the official archive, okay, whether these records be written or visual, um, and, of course, the people who are often looking back at the camera are not, leaving behind what they saw when they looked at the camera, okay? So they don't leave behind their own sure. archive. So yeah, the, a really important ethical question arises when those people or descendants of those people come to writing their own histories. How do you do this if you don't have access to the types of documents that Western historiography demands, photography, cinema, um, textual documents. Well, one of the ways in which you do it, as many filmmakers have attested, and here I'm thinking of um, Cheryl Dunyer, um, uh, for example, is you, you know, uh, you, you borrow a type of speculative history whereby you say that or you argue that, well, I have to invent um, I have to invent the history because those records aren't there for me. The only records that do exist are those that negate me. Uh, you know, um, mm -hmm. so so I think that this type of speculative aspect to the visual repost argument um, very much speaks to the the post-colonial moment in which these critics are, um, you know, are trying to to speak for the complexities of the past and how we can um, write about film and visual um, history without simply repeating. Uh, you know, the line that the, the apparatus oppresses racial others, etc. Now, you are one of the first cinema journal writers to participate in something of a, an experiment, which is returning to the topic of your essay in a column on flowtv.org as a way of kind of extending the conversation about a, a, an article that you probably finished writing a couple of years ago. Uh, due to the publicate the way publication deadlines and delays work, and I was wondering if you had any thoughts about how that has has worked out for you. 
It was actually really interesting and uh, a really wonderful thing to do. Um, it is strange, though, because exactly as, you know, as we all know with academic publishing, one finishes the article years before it comes out and then uh, one just lets go of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, the, the Cinema Journal people asked me, as well as the other authors in that issue, obviously, um, to return to it and to think about it. And so at first it took me a couple of days to, to want to do that and then I actually had to read the article again. Well, that's one of the things you have to do, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, that's not actually something I usually do, which is sad but true. Yeah. Um, but it was it was a really, you know, for me, interesting and productive move because, as I think I mentioned in that flow piece, um, the essay is personally important to me for a number of reasons um, because it really, for me, came out of a desire to you know, express and articulate a type of trajectory within my own intellectual career. Um, Post-colonial theory um, is a really important part of my intellectual formation, as was the um, uh, discovery of early cinema when I was a um, a graduate student at the University of Chicago. Um, So, you know, I was working both with Honey Barber and and, um, Miriam Hansen and and Tom Gunning. Um, Mm -hmm. And this essay really came out of questions that I was mulling over as I was working through um, the beginnings of uh, um, the larger dissertation project. Um, And they were questions that, you know, were quite tricky for me to answer as well. So the essay is important to me personally. So it was a chance to sort of think about that. And then the, um, the afterthoughts piece was also a chance to sort of open up the essay to examples that, of course, get edited out in any type of academic piece. Um, and part of what I was mapping out in the Visual Repost essay um, was this sort of wider media culture interest in return of the gaze moments and modes. Um, so not just looking at how film study scholars mobilise that hermeneutic um, uh, figure, but how it also plays out in a lot of uh, avant-garde um, found footage films and how it also plays out in certain types of um, uh, DVD commentaries, how it's also manifest in certain museum practices. Um, and so one of them I mentioned in the flow piece where uh, you can see this really fascinating sort of Caligari-esque um, architectural materialisation of this obsession with the return gaze at Berlin's Film Museum. Mm-hmm. Before you actually enter the museum proper, you go through this sort of antechamber, uh, um, you know, and you're surrounded by screens with return gazes um, on, on loops of different um, famous German stars. And it's sort of this weird, you know, uh, hall of mirrors rendition of... Uh, the return gaze obsession that our culture has. Um, and so the the afterthoughts piece gave me a, an opportunity to think about those other examples also. And then finally, it also gave me a chance to reflect upon, um, and this is always important for me, to reflect upon the teaching that I was doing um, at the end of this semester. And I happened to be teaching an undergraduate seminar on, uh, um, it was a photography seminar Um, called If Looks Could Kill. And um, part of the through line of that uh, undergraduate seminar was getting undergraduate students to think about different moments and modes within the history of photography where looks at the camera uh, are really evident and have sparked really important debates. Um, And so I was working at the time of writing the Afterthoughts piece with a group of students who were studying the history of photography but also opening the history of photography up via different examples of returns of the gaze. And and that was really interesting for my thinking and um, uh, and for returning to the piece and thinking through that as well. Dr. Ahmad, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. You're most welcome.
right. Thank you for that uh, segment, Michael. Now we are moving on to a, a segment that was produced by Bill, and this goes back once again to the SCMS conference. At the conference, he got together three SEMS members to talk about teaching. So this is Aaron Coppelsmith, Anne Helen Peterson, and Julie Wilson, and they had a chat about um, teaching. This is a really great model. We hope to do this again uh, sometime in the near future where we put three scholars together to chat about a topic, and their topic was teaching and with a particular focus on the role of social media. So here's Aaron Coppelsmith, Anne Helen Peterson, and Julie Wilson. I'm Erin Koppel-Smith. I teach in the Communication, Media, and Theater Department at Austin College in Sherman, Texas. I am Anne Helen Peterson, and I teach Film and Media Studies at Whitman College in Walla Walla, Washington. I'm Julie Wilson, and I teach at Allegheny College in the Department of Communication, Arts, and Theater. So the Teaching Media Dossier, which is sponsored by Cinema Journal and hosted at teachingmedia.org, came out of a discussion that we had at the Teaching Committee meeting at SCMS last year in Boston. The idea was that uh, Cinema Journal had hosted teaching dossiers in the journal before, and we were going to try to do that again. And the topic was floated to do um, teaching with, in parentheses, social media Eventually, it became clear that Will Brooker at Cinema Journal was interested in sort of expanding the profile of Cinema Journal, um, and part of that was in his interest in publishing the dossier online. Uh, Lisa, Patty, and I co-edited the dossier, and one of the great things that we thought about hosting it online was that since the topic was teaching with social media, all of our contributors were able to include links to their own course materials, to other relevant materials online, in some cases to their student projects or the work that their classes had done online and on Flickr or YouTube or on blogs, which was really exciting. And I think that the idea of teaching with social media is something that all of us are thinking about in our classrooms. So I don't know, Julie and Annie, if you use uh, social media in your classes. I recently am doing a class on media institutions for the first time, and yeah. I was worried because I usually teach kind of like critical media studies, and we talk about hegemony and ideology. I was like, how am I going to teach a class on institutions when I'm not a historian, and it seems a little dry to me. I mean, I love the industry's work, but how do I teach that into a, in a small classroom when I don't want to lecture? And I went to our information technologist and said, what do you think? Like, I, I think I want to use some sort of tool and really turn the class into a think tank where we're studying these inst institutions and industries and how they work and what are the critical implications of how they work. And I've been using PBWorks and uh, yeah. um, everything we do is online. So um, different students lead the team. Like, I'm like, you're not coming to class. You're coming to work. You're a researcher mm -hmm. and think tank. And um, so all of our class conversations are recorded in real time. And then they have to kind of re-present that conversation into, like, a collective intelligence report. But I think it's wow. really, really cool. Have they been receptive to that, the students? I was really worried because if they didn't buy in, yeah. like, <laughs> the class is broken. <laughs> it's over. Yeah, right. um, but they tell, they tell me, that, like, I really feel like I'm coming to work. Like, I, you know, I think for the most part, the buy-in's been really, really uh -huh. good. They all have, we read, we're reading four books. They all have their books out. They get individual, like, assessments and no grades. I'm like, it, it work, you don't get graded. Like, mm -hmm. right, you know, you get feedback on your performance. Right. Um... And so, but yeah, I think it's been going well. We just started production culture, so. Cool. A conversation came up recently on the Facebook group about, you know, is this valuable to have students using social media in the classroom, or is it just, is it extra work for the students? Is it just extra work for the faculty? Is it putting unrealistic demands on the time of both students and faculty? I thought that generated a really interesting discussion where some people said, absolutely, it places unreasonable demands, that's why I don't use it. And uh, Mark Stewart and I both commented that we use Facebook in our classes, but it's completely optional. Mm. Um, it's just a way of getting extra credit in both of our cases. And so if students want to opt out, then they can do so without any sort of penalty to their grade. And I've found that students use it to varying degrees based on their comfort level or interest. If I model active use of the Facebook group, then they will sort of model that back to me. Uh, this semester I've been really busy, so I haven't been using it as much, and I've noticed they haven't been using it as much either. But, you know, for the most part, I think it's a good way for students to engage in class in a different way, and that's sort of how I try to sell it. I, I, was, I really struggle with what I'm doing on the wiki to get students, because in class, or in our meetings, um, <laughs> they, you know, they participate on it, and they do all the assignments are 
on the wiki. Um, but just having a conversation and a discussion, like that has been the hardest part to engender. Mm. And I think that if we were on Facebook, it would happen way more easily because they are actually, most of them are on Facebook. And then with the teaching media conversations as well, we have these amazing conversations on Facebook because it's so embedded in what we're doing. That conversation can develop spontaneously. And so for me, there's this real, um, you know, dilemma about do I use the tools like Facebook that actually I think, like you're saying, you can model it and they'll get it and they'll see it. Or do you try to experiment with things like PB Works and... um, I'm really sensitive to the labor issues on both ends, right? And so Facebook is a is a good way to ensure that they're going to be there and be looking. But I think it's interesting that it's difficult to get them to do Twitter. But I, you know, when I I use blogs in the classroom and they have to post, you know, a 500 word response every week. It's different sometimes. Like sometimes they're responding to each other. Sometimes there's one question and they write a 500 word comment. And then, but they also have to do two comments on other people's posts. And it's just, I grade it and they, they have to do it, you know, like, and I think also a lot of them still, this is so fascinating to me, don't want to write in WordPress. They write like a Word doc and then they copy and paste it into WordPress, partly just because they're not used to it, but it, it's more for them like, oh, here's a paper that I wrote and then I'm going to put it on this blog. But over the course of the semester, they get more used to thinking in the terms of blogginess, right? Instead, and I tell them very specifically, you don't have to use formal language. I do want you to spell check, but like this isn't, you know, formal paper type of thing. I mean, I think it's a balance. I, I think the students need help writing and like making an argument and the traditional kind of essay format. But I also think that there's a value in getting them to be okay with publicizing their knowledge and thinking together. Um, I think that's what they're going to have to do in life increasingly not write analytic essays um and so i think that i think i was like very wary of putting so many assignments online and getting them to think through these um use these new tools and write in different ways because i think we're all maybe invested in that scholarly you're not you're inspiring um (laughs) but you know but you know that's where value comes from for us largely and i think that's changing a lot so, you know, with students, you think that that's what they need, too. But increasingly, I think that they need they need both because, like, what is going to stick with them and what is going to really help them coming mm-hmm. out of school with a lot of debt and a hard world is feeling confident enough to contribute and be part of a team of people working together. Right. And making their writing visible to mm-hmm. each other. Maybe that's what I was trying to gesture towards to some extent is that I think that because they know that... 10 of their peers are reading their blog post instead of just me there's a fear of shame so they put more effort into it or try to spell check and the sort of things that we would want all of our students to do at all times I mean it's almost like a panopticon you know you're being watched so you perform or you write in a certain way I think too there's a real value I, I tell my students all the time please embed links and include mm-hmm. video and include yeah. images because this is what makes a blog post a blog post right. and not an essay and some of them do better with that than others but I do think that once you have a critical mass of those students who get it yeah. and they're in the rhythm and they're familiar with this they serve as a really good model for student I mean some students are just never going to care right They're just always going to do the bare minimum and then move on. But the students who are confused or not sure what something should look like, if they see a post from a student that's really great, and if I say in class, has everyone read so-and-so's post? It was really good. Um, Then they go and look and they use that as a model, and then that can feed. You know, as Annie said, I always see improvement from the beginning of the semester to the end of the semester, which is all we ever want in classes (laughs) is for them to get better both making an argument and presenting it online in a way that fits a blog format. Yeah. And I would say for anyone who's you know reticent to use blogs in the classroom because they are not maybe as familiar with WordPress, it's really intuitive, but also our students are more intuitive with it than even I think five years ago. I've been teaching with WordPress blogs for five years. And the first time I did it, you know, I had to sit and show each person how to like sign up for a username and here's how you use the interface and all that sort of thing. Now I just invite them to the blog and they, they, they're, they're ready they to go. figure it out on their own. Yeah. 
I don't know about your students, but I feel like my students at Allegheny, their lives are very segmented. So mm. it's like I have my schoolwork that has to get done. I have my extracurricular stuff. I have my social life and my sorority or whatever it is. But they compartmentalize everything. And I think the vast majority of our colleagues are not requiring this sort of work. It's right. not part of the habits and the rituals of being the student and checking off those boxes. Like they spend plenty of time on Facebook and social media, but not within that compartment. So I think it's like habits and what it means to do student work that need to be broken. And I think it's hard for one class Mm -hmm. to do that somehow. And I like the wiki, I tried to like, everything's online. So there's no paper in the class. Like you're always on there. And even still, it seems because I was thinking about that, like how can I get them in a new habit of being students and new mm-hmm. rituals and but still that discussion is hard for them to have. Like they'll do their work there because it's graded and they have mm-hmm. to, but taking advantage of the technology really to have kind of an ongoing discussion outside of class. No, because class is here, right? Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. something to get checked off. I also think that majors or minors, people who are taking more than one class in the department, get it pretty quickly. And so even in the second semester that I've been at Whitman, my majors and students that have had me in two classes are much more comfortable in the blog arena and, you know, commenting back to me when I comment and that sort of thing. So some of it is just practice. I think some of it is contextual too. I, you know, I I always have Facebook groups for all my classes and the most active one is always for my introduction to media studies Mm. course. And I think part of that is because the course is designed as an introduction and I always tell them, now that you know about cinematography, you're going to see things when you're consuming media and go, oh, wow, right. you know, have that mm-hmm. moment. Right, right, right. And this Facebook group is a great place for you to go, oh, I had a moment, and sort of share it with everybody. Last semester, I was talking about different editing strategies, and I didn't have an example in my discussion for a graphic match. After class, two students posted an example of a graphic match mm-hmm. to the Facebook group, and I'm using them this semester and giving them credit, obviously, for their labor. But I think that that particular environment is really great because it's about them, the things that they're just encountering in their regular life, and then it makes them think of class, and so then they post it to the Facebook group. Mm-hmm. In, in a different sort of class, they're not coming across material on media industry news just in their everyday life just reading the hollywood reporter (laughs) my latest variety came and here's this you know interesting thing so that feels more like work to them they have to go out and find those links before posting them and so i think that's why they don't do it so often i I still don't have a great strategy for that because of course part of the goal is to encourage them to do things like check out variety or at least read chris's blog and then repost (laughs) in a facebook group something that she posted but that's just i think julie's absolutely right that it's about these boxes don't overlap i I think there's a discourse going around among faculty about you know it's nicholas carr and the shallows and how all these students are multitasking and they're digital natives and they don't really they're easily distracted and they don't think deeply um and like my biggest pedagogical mantra is always meet students where they're at and don't necessarily like buy into you know oh this is ruining their brains and um I think that experimenting with social media in the classroom is a way to kind of meet them where they're at even if it doesn't work right like And if it's something that you don't do and that you don't know anything about, at least if you incorporate it into the class, you get a feel for what it's like. Mm -hmm. And this is where students are. And I think it's really, really important to have a sense of the rhythms of it, what it's like, again, even if it fails. So if you're thinking about using social media in the classroom and you're feeling really reticent about it and very un- uncertain, I think that there are a couple of things that you can do. One is just jump in, just try it. The stakes are really very low and you can sell it to your students as we're going to figure this out together or whatever it is, but um, you know, just give it a shot. In terms of practical knowledge, ask around if, if you are... If you yourself are on Facebook or on Twitter, feel free to jump into the communities there of media scholars who are using social media in the classroom to ask their advice, to seek their guidance, to get tips and tricks. And if you're not, ask some of your colleagues on your campus. I have no doubt that there are at least a handful of colleagues on every campus who are 
trying out these different tools um, and ask around. Do you know anyone who's using blogs in the classroom? Do you know anyone who's using Twitter? And seek out their advice. In many cases, that's very useful because they can give you institution-specific advice. So if you know, Annie said that at Whitman, a lot of students sort of uh, stay off of Facebook for political reasons. That's good advice to have that's specific to your institution. I think the pedagogical risk-taking can be very invigorating. So even if it, you know, even if you're scared, even if it doesn't end up working, still that taking that risk can change the dynamics of how you think about teaching, how you approach your students. I think bridging old pedagogical models mm-hmm. and new are, is mm-hmm. useful also. Yes. So if you're not sure where to start, start with, you know, those response papers that you have them turn out every week, have them put it on a blog instead. Right. Um, and that, that's it. That's, that's the baby step. We're going to do this ex- the same assignment, but we're going to, instead of turning it in in paper, we're going to have you put it on the blog instead and just make that move and, and have that be sort of your baby step into, into using social media in the classroom. That was a great conversation, but weren't we supposed to hear Bill? I thought we were supposed to be here, Bill, yes. But he decided because they were basically one of the conversation to be among them. So he just sat there and, and stared at them, I guess. Um, you know, Bill needs to get over this. I know some <laughs> people are kind of camera shy and, and maybe he right. thinks his like, voice makes him sound funny. Or... Well, he apparently will be getting over whatever it is with, uh, I think, our next episode or the maybe it's the August one because he's going to interview his colleague at Denison, um, Hollis Griffin, about a cinema journal in focus issue. So we we will hear Bill Excellent. in, I think, August. That'll be. Um, He's going to need to just get over it. Yeah, which now, of course, we've made it a thing. Right now it's a thing, and he's probably going to have to, like, diffuse the tension and, you know. No, this Bill. We also have been working on a new Vox Galari piece, but we're not completely ready to share that just yet. Yeah, the topic was uh, surprises in the classroom. So we asked for people to submit to us uh, their stories of surprises in the classroom, and we got uh, somewhat less than we were hoping for submitted. So at Consoling Passions Conference, I asked a few of the participants if they would also be able to submit, you know, in person some stories. And I found some reluctance. Um, A few people said they had good stories, but they didn't want, you know, maybe students to hear. They thought students might think they were, you know, their professors were judging them. Um, A few people were, you know, some very interesting stories of people uh, who teach at colleges outside of their own culture, outside of their own country, and they said they feared they didn't want their stories to sound like they were exoticizing another culture or making judgments. Um, And then there were some who said they simply didn't have a good story, which I think is, that's never true. I think it's always, there's an assumption. never true. And, you know, I think everyone's got something insightful. So we are going to save the ones we did get. And shout out to Nina Huntman and uh, um, Suzanne Scott for, you know, offering their stories to me at SEM, um, excuse me, at Consoling Passion. So we are still going to use those. Uh, but we're just basically going to do kind of what uh, journals do. We're going to extend the call for submissions. We will and, extend uh, the call. And, and here's the thing. If, if some of you are, are still a little bit, you know, a little bit nervous about like, having your voice recorded to um, electrons, you can take the Bill Kirkpatrick approach and you can, you know, you could send in something where it's like, hello, this is I am speaking to you about a surprise, something that happened in the classroom. That sounds frightening. That yeah. sounds frightening. Well, you know, that's, you got to do what you got to do. Or another option is you can send us the text of your story. If you just want to write and it out, I if you want to remain, uh, yeah, if you want to remain anonymous, if there's an issue where you think your students might find a problem with it or your boss might find a problem with it or something like that, just send us the text. Don't even tell us the university. Don't tell us the country. Don't tell us your gender, whatever. Just, you know, if you got a good story, just send us the text and we'll, we'll read it. You should know that, that if you do that, then we get to do a dramatic reading. <laughs> I love that idea. Okay, we can do it in like different as characters then even, you know, like I oh, can, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah we're, oh. we, we will run with it. <laughs> like, like, uh, you know, great teachers in film and television history. We can pretend it's like Mr. Chips. This happened to Mr. Chips oh, or it happened man. to, you know, Prisbalewski in The Wire or something like that. Oh, nice. This is nice. a good idea now. Now I totally want to do this. Oh, yeah, this is good. <laughs> so, in fact, don't record yourselves. <laughs> just send us, you know, just send us text and we will... Send us text, Animated. and then the, the the famous teacher in film or television history who you who in whose voice you want it read off as, <laughs> and we'll take care of the rest. 
Maybe we could do like a Blackboard Jungle segment. That would be good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's the, the possibilities are endless. Excellent. All right. All right. That That is going to bring this uh, episode of Acamedia to a close. Um, and before we exit, though, we have been remiss in uh, reminding our listeners all of the various ways in which you can interact with us here at Acamedia, either Michael and I or Bill. We've got Facebook group. We've got all kinds of other things, uh, which we should also definitely mention our website. Bill puts um, a great amount of effort into posting links to our website. And the hits that he's been seeing are, again, less than we would hope. So I think most most people are probably just, you know, grabbing the podcast off of iTunes and don't see the links. And uh, Bill's doing a great job with, with some really great links on the website. So we want to encourage you to go to aka-media.org and uh, check out the links for each of the episodes. We have links to, you know, basically everything we talk about. And then Bill always throws in a few wild cards of fun things. There that, are some uh, Easter eggs in that website. There are some Easter eggs. Don't forget the About Us page, one of our favorite Easter eggs, which... Uh, you know, uh, Michael's picture. I'll just leave that there. Check that every month. That changes every month. So check that out. We can also be reached uh, via email at info at aca-media.org, as well as our presence on Facebook and Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at aca underscore media. And our Facebook group, how do how does someone find our Facebook group? Do you know? I think you just look up ACA-media, and if you have any difficulty finding that, then ping one of us, and we'll make sure you get... Exactly. Send us a tweet, and we'll tell you how to find us on Facebook. It's like a scavenger hunt. <laughs> we are all spread all over. And then I, um, I'm on, on Twitter. I'm uh, CRS Becker uh, is my Twitter handle. I'm M. Kackman. Before we jump into the thank yous and you push stop button, which you shouldn't do because you should listen to all of our thank yous, um, I just want to preface we're going to have a, a, a brief segment after all those thank yous. So make sure to listen to all the thank yous so you get the, 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 the brief gem at the end. ACA Media is a project of Cinema Journal and the Society for Cinema and Media Studies. It's supported by ISLA and by the Department of Film, Television, and Theater at the University of Notre Dame and the Department of Communication at Denison University. And we'd also like to thank the participants in this episode. That's Paula Ahmad and then the Teaching Roundtable participants, Aaron Koppel-Smith, Anne Helen Peterson, and Julie Wilson. We also want to remind you that ACA Media is co-produced by the two of us, as well as by Bill Kirkpatrick at Denison University. And it's all brought together by the golden ears of Todd Thompson, who is our co-producer, engineer, and composer. He can be reached at the Dharma Bomb Studios, where he mixes audio uh, for films and music here in Austin. So for the final, our final goodbye segment here, Bill has encouraged us to do something special, basically to encourage you all to listen through all the thank yous and not push stop. But uh, we're still, that's still a work in progress. We don't want to steal someone else's idea, have a moment of zen or, you know, whatever. Um, so we're still working on that. But I did think about, uh, you know, I've been doing some really interesting viewing over the past three weeks while on this vacation. So I thought that would be at least something worth listening to, uh, sort of what, what I've been watching or what we've Excellent. been watching over the past few weeks. So um, for me, I guess there's two things I would point out. First of all, I've been watching um, a lot of documentaries. This is one of the great glories of British TV is amazing documentaries and everything from um, kind of esoteric topics. Uh, there was a documentary on London bus drivers that was fascinating. And then the usual kind of sensational topics like the man with the 10 stone testicles, which Wowzers. has been, yeah, that's the 10 stone. That's, that's a lot of testicle. I think that's um, a whole lot. Which it's, I think TLC picked it up, which is no surprise. So Americans will get to see it. But the real fun thing, while on trains, um, I've been watching. First of all, I caught up on Orphan Black on my iPad, which was great. But the uh, the best thing is with Anna Frola at East Carolina University. Uh, she's writing a monograph about China Beach, about the the Danny Delaney show from the 1980s, and. It's one of my all-time favorite shows, so we both picked it up on DVD, and we've been live-tweeting our viewing of China Beach. So we started with the first season, and you know we just try to sync when I'm going to be on a train, and she's free, which for her is usually like seven or eight in the morning. Um, so she's been she's been a good soldier about it, and but it's been really fun having this transatlantic experience of of rewatching China Beach and sharing our thoughts on Twitter. So that's what's been uh, really grooving me with media over the past couple weeks. Oh, that's those all sound really good. Those are better than what I've got. The <laughs> the weather here in Austin has turned, and so I'm Ooh. starting to feel like Harry Dean Stanton coming in out of the desert in Paris, Texas, mm. um, which means that there's only one possible thing you can do, which is lay on the tile floor, drink beer, and watch old westerns.
Thanks for listening.